Hi, this is Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist, and this is Jackie Miller. In this episode, I have guest Courtney Gilmartin, who is a victim, survivor, turned advocate, and family court strategist. Courtney resides in New Jersey and shares her story of the horrible post-separation abuse she has endured since filing for divorce from her ex-husband. Courtney has used her experience to fuel her passion for making a difference in New Jersey law, coercive control, and to help prioritize child safety and family court. Since we recorded this episode, Courtney has reported great news that the New Jersey Senate unanimously passed a bill, A1475, regarding coercive control, and it is currently sitting on the governor's desk to be signed into law. New Jersey will be the fifth state to codify coercive control. And now, here's my interview with Courtney Gilmartin. All right. Hello, Courtney Gilmartin. I am so happy to have you on Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Every time I say the name of the podcast, I'm like, I'm not out of crazy town yet, but it's very fitting. <laughs> but that is the reason I chose the name because I, it's like, just get me out of here, please. I literally was on the phone with my girlfriend this morning and she asked what name of the podcast and I told her and she was dying laughing. She's like, that's very fitting. I'm like, my ex is literally the mayor of crazy town. Yes. They're the mayor. Like I don't want this zip code. Let me tell people a little bit about why you're here. And again, thank you so much for coming on because you are a victim survivor turned advocate and family court strategist and just sort of inspirational to the rest of us and how we can make a difference. I think it's so important to get stories out there so that women mostly do not feel alone. They don't feel crazy. They just know that there are, you know, there's a big support group out there. So thank you so much. You and your two children live in New Jersey and you are a protective mom, which I want to comment on in a minute as well. Advocacy, education, awareness, and collaboration. You have extensive experience with custody litigation court strategy. You just want to prioritize safety and children above parental contact, which is the big problem. It is the big problem. And I think it's something, sadly, you know, the stories, they always start the same. You know, like I entered family court. I told the judge, I told my lawyer, what my boyfriend, ex-husband, whatever, doing. And I thought that they would protect the kids. And as systemically, you know, we see failures all of the time, which is so unfortunate. And I have been separated since 2016, divorced since 2017, and in custody litigation since 2017. Just this year, I was in court I believe 19 times already. It'll be 20 Friday. We have constant case management conferences, they call it here. Um, there's been a lot of handholding in my case. So just to give everyone a brief background, I should have probably known when we filed all the paperwork and my attorney called and he's like, yeah, your ex won't let us serve him. He literally is going to the courthouse every single day and asking the office for the papers. Like He wants them to serve him right there. Sure enough, um, when the paperwork was finally processed, you know, he saved me, I guess, the service fee and they served him right there. So that just goes to show the level of control that my ex has to have. Like everything has to be his way. And he really wants a lot of things to be kept behind closed doors, which is how a lot of these abusive people operate, right? He didn't want to be served at work. He didn't want to be served out. He didn't want to be served at home. God forbid anyone was there. So yeah, he was going to control that narrative and he was going to control how, how that went down. It's 
ironic because two years ago when we started really into this like escalated custody litigation, he had me served in person at our daughter's first home soccer game under the lights on a Friday night with all of the families in the bleacher. He had some random courier, you know, walk up to the bleachers and serve me in front of everybody just to you know, mortify, embarrass. So just to illustrate, right, he will do anything and everything not to be served at work or and then goes to great lengths to humiliate you and make a show of your serving. You know, to the optics, to everyone around, the undercurrent and the message that isn't so explicit to everybody else, so explicit to me. You know, Mm -hmm. like as soon as I got served that stack of paper, I knew exactly what he was doing. It's a power play. It's intimidation. It's basically a giant F you. It's really telling. I mean, we've had, I've had years of dealing with a lot of public aggression, a lot of public humiliation, a lot of really jarring behavior on his behalf that is really, you know, intended to isolate me, keep me from really moving on in a really holistic way with my life, if you will. So, you know, there is a part of that, you know, and a lot of people have said, you know, how can you ever be in a relationship with someone like that, which is unfortunate. And for so many, it's such a uh, in reality, because you think you're going to get divorced. I read that book, When Will I Be Free of You, which was really helpful when I was getting divorced. But it's, I still find myself saying, like, when am I going to be free? You know, I'm divorced years now, and I still, it's almost as if I'm still married, right? Which is so, it's a really heavy thing for people to be able to emotionally process that. The divorce was contentious to say the least. We did go back and forth on custody for a while. We had some temporary really bad orders from the judges where custody was 50-50 and it was very choppy, a lot of back and forth. And a lot of the exchanges were was really where the problems would arise. Any contact, any opportunity for him is fair and game. Would you mind going into like some examples of what would happen during exchange? Just a lot of yelling, getting out of the car. One instance, the kids were like five and three when we first split. So he would help them out of the car in the beginning. And I remember I was standing on the front porch and he had a garage door opener in his hand and he just shot it right at me, you know, screaming, yelling, pulling in really fast, pulling away really fast out of the driveway, like speeding off. If my friends or family were there, you know, fighting with them, anything and everything to cause utter chaos. There was all this behavior that he has done throughout the years where he would drop the kids or we would exchange the kids. And then like an hour or two or later on that night or the next day, he'd be at my house dropping off a t-shirt or a sneaker or something random that they didn't need. But that is very much like the way he kept surveillance, right? That's essentially stalking. 100%. And it would be random times. And and a lot of time it would be really early in the morning. And I'm always, I would always say to my attorney and people involved like that is concerning. There's no reason for him to be there. And then, and Courtney, that is such a great example right there because it is the, it's stalking, it's intimidation. And that is a situation you cannot explain in court. You just can't. It's kind of like they know it and it's so upsetting and so deeply concerning and you don't know when it's going to happen again and you don't know if it's going to escalate. And so I just feel your pain because it's so upsetting. Right. And it's also when I, when you call the police even further, like 
he's not doing anything really illegal, right? Like we've had, I've, I've had various no contact and restraining orders. I have my fourth right now, just to give you a little insight as to how tumultuous it's been. But you know, at the times he's done that there, there hasn't been a restraining order. So you call the cops and well, he's not really doing anything, you know? So when they do that, there's this element of unpredictability. And when someone's unpredictable in either their behavior or their actions, because he's both, you constantly feel unsettled, right? So there was never any real sense of peace because I'm like, what if he shows up? What if he's looking in my windows? What if someone's getting out of their car and then he's trying to fight them or yell at them? Or I remember one instance, I was on a work call. It was not this past summer, the summer before. Mind you, we were in the middle of a full-blown forensic custody evaluation. So Mm -hmm. normal, non-disordered, you know, people would be on their best behavior. And all of a sudden I heard someone yelling outside my house, just a loud male voice. Sure enough, it was him. He was standing outside just screaming loser over and over in front of my house. I remember I called my attorney and she's like, do you want to call the cops? I'm like, say what though? My ex-husband's outside screaming loser. I mean, it's just the conduct is so concerning and alarming. No one in their right mind would do that. Right. But you know, they get away with it because it's technically not illegal. Is it harassment? I mean, let's just be honest. Yes. No. Like if he did that to a neighbor, a coworker, a stranger, he would probably get in trouble. There's no reason for him to be behaving that way. It's not a beneficial behavior, right? So yes, but do the courts recognize it as such? Not really. So that's just a little bit of the mountain of things that I could talk about, you know, his inappropriate behavior and things he's done. But we litigated the divorce for like a year. And once we settled on the financial components of the divorce, we really took a look at custody and we were able to get him and his attorney to settle on me being primary parent and him being parent of alternate residents with almost a 50-50 custody split, but not, which was helpful. Okay. And can I ask uh, you, how long did it take you to get there from when you filed? So I'd probably say 13 months to answer your question. But what we did was, and I think how we kind of got there was that my attorney was like, let's put a clause in there where we're going to say explicitly that we're not happy with this custody agreement agreement, but we're settling it because of the financial undertaking it would take to take this to trial. So you're not happy. You want him to have less time. He's not happy. He wants to have more time. Therefore, you both reserve the right to a custody evaluation without a change in circumstance for two years. If it's after two years, there has to be a change in circumstance and you'll have to petition the court. But this is who you agree to use. And we named our expert whom I was told was a really valuable expert, was very good. She understood the dynamics of IPV and domestic abuse. I didn't know what coercive control was at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my first attorney was amazing. And he was really helpful in saying like, this is about the long game, not the short game. If you go for a custody eval right now, you know, the dust hasn't even settled. You're not even used to like splitting holidays and the kids back and forth and the kids are really... So in the end, is it going to be super beneficial? He's like, I don't know, but you might want to wait a little bit. So I continued to wait. We we had a PC that was supposed to help us with things. He wouldn't sign a passport. So it took me six months to get him to sign a passport form. So mm. I patient. And then I remember my the PC did the form. And in New Jersey, attorneys are also notaries and it had to be notarized. Oh. So I was please notarize it. Sure enough, it got kicked back. Like, you didn't notarize this. Then he wouldn't sign it again. So 
So that was a whole nightmare. And then my sister was getting married. My only sister, um, she was getting married and it happened to fall on his weekend. He was refusing to let the kids go. So we had to use the PC. I mean, just like anything was an issue. So we used the PC. Of course, I documented, you know, everyone says document, document, documents. It's almost another job, but I really just, thankfully we live in 2023 now, you know, but the age of Google Sheets and Google Drive and computers and everything. So I just had a running spreadsheet and I would just log things. Thank you for that because I know a lot of people to know how others that really been through document. And so thank you for even just that, you know, comment on the Google Sheets. Yeah, it's a lot. But if you just have a repository where you can drop it and forget about it, so you don't have to belabor it or it doesn't weigh on you or you're not thinking about it, it will be helpful, especially if you're dealing with someone, my ex or anyone's ex where it's just constant. And the more you are in it, you'll be able to, you know, see the patterns and the themes and you can kind of just refine your list and have like a tab for bad communication, a tab for screaming in public, a tab for what the kids said, like you can start to separate it once you kind of understand the scope of what you're dealing with, because they all while they're the same, they're different. So yeah. I, I try to always say that to people too. Like, you know, your abuser better than anybody. And that's a Lundy Bancroft thing, but it's so true. So it's so true. I say it myself all the time. Definitely. I always say to people, you're also in a fog, you're trying to get divorced, you're whatever, you're separated, you're reeling with, you know, the holidays are always hard. So give yourself some credit. Don't beat yourself up about all the documentation and all that. As long as you have it written down, I feel like that's a good basis and you can always improve as you go on. Sure. We settled that way. I think he kind of thought he won. You know, I dealt with a lot of things, you know, like I also wanted to deal with my emotional baggage getting out of that relationship. There was a Mm. lot, you know, things I had to process and understand and life, a single mom with two young kids. And, you know, I think People really need to get some time under their belt to deal with a lot of the emotional stuff that comes after divorce before running into a custody evaluation if you can wait. So I wanted to do all that. And truthfully, like I wanted to get back into working and focus on my career a little bit because, you know, I think a lot of us give a lot of ourselves away in these abusive relationships. So I kind of put all that on the back burner. So that was really my focus. Just really, I wanted to be in a place where I felt solid and able to support my kids if I, if, and when we needed the custody of So, and just so I'm clear then, so you, you had agreed on the custody and you had the clause in there about the custody of in two years. So are you saying that two years had gone by and then enter the custody of Two years went by 2019 things started to get really dicey more so than things that I had already expressed, just constant conflict. And, you know, the kids were involved in more and more activities. So that was more opportunities for there to be problems. And I have an email where I reached out to the office that ended up doing the eval in 2019. And I was listening, things are really bad. You know, I think we're going to go forward. And then COVID hit and the world kind of shut down. Things were quiet, which is strange. I feel like he couldn't control the outside world. So he, I guess, took a break from all the insanity that he had been doing. And then as the world started to open back up, his abuse just escalated almost in line with it. So, you know, as soon as the kids and I started to travel more, that was a problem. And he didn't want my kids with certain people and he didn't want them going certain places. And it just started this whole snowball effect. My daughter was in sixth going into seventh grade. You know, she was becoming a young lady of her own with her own ideas. And Middle school is so hard anyway. Oh my goodness. And then add that on top of it. 
he was very polarizing where, because we live in separate towns. So it was very like my house and your friends versus my friends and mom's friends versus me. And she was getting a social life and she wanted to hang out here more than there. And that did not go over well. So the, I guess the catalyst to it all was this summer of 21. I got my son an Apple watch and he did not like that. So he showed up at my house to pick up my son and just started screaming at me about the Apple watch in front of the kids and saying, you know, he was going to bash my face in with a sledgehammer and all these crazy things. In front of the children, he said he was going to bash your face in with a sledgehammer. Yeah. So I got a restraining order and that was my third. And then the next day after I got the restraining order, then the courthouse called my phone and they were like, your ex-husband's here. He filed an emergency motion and he's trying to have you committed and the kids taken away. And he also is trying to get a restraining order on you, but he didn't apply for a restraining order. He just applied for the emergency order to show cause. My divorce attorney who had been helping me throughout the years had become a conflict because he partnered with our first parenting coordinator. So he's like, represent yourself for now and let's see what happens. I wasn't committed, but he tried. They still were holding court hearings virtually that he was going to go in that courtroom and talk to that judge. And they sure enough, they let him in. So he was in the courtroom. I was on Zoom. They served him with the restraining order there because they hadn't served him yet. The judge just basically said, like, this isn't an order to show cause. If you want to deal with custody, you can file a regular motion. And then that was the impetus for him to have me served under the lights, you know, on a Friday with the whole soccer team's parents watching. And then September, he turned around and filed. And that's since September of 21, we've been in highly, highly contentious litigation. So the hearing in September, he was asking for makeup time because after I got that restraining order, my daughter was like, I'm not going with him anymore. He's crazy. All he does is scream Mm. at us, yells at us. So all he does is complain about you. And how old was she when she said this? She was 11. And I mean, it had been going on for a long time. You know, I had tried in the past to be like, please stop. You know, you're upsetting the kids. You know, everything was just like I said, mommy's bad and mommy's house is this and mommy's friends are bad people and mommy, you know, just that rhetoric, which is so damaging because it's basically indoctrination, right? They're, yes, indoctrinating them. And then on the other side, they groom them to idolize and worship them. So there's like this dual damaging like strategy that these, some abusers take on. And if I can add to that, then they, instill fear in them peppered in so that if you don't follow in line with what I say, they're terrified of what might happen. And look at you as an adult, constantly in fear of what he's capable of. And so you imagine they're poor little children. The fear too can be, I think, instilled in a variety of ways. So like either directly at them or his abusive behavior towards me, because then they're seeing that and they're like, well, I don't want to be on the other side of dad. Witnessing Uh, it. Absolutely. It it is just almost just as effective. Sure. He's ragey person. If that's even a word, he's aggressive. He's very hostile. Everything's like extreme. You know, he uses a car a lot to intimidate. He drives very fast. When someone is behaving in that way and the kids are out socializing or at a restaurant or, and you have him yelling or screaming at people or getting out of his car to fight people, that also imposes fear on them because they're like, well, if I make dad mad, that's what he's going to do. It allows the abuse to continue because, you know, the kids aren't going to school or coming to me saying, dad was screaming at me and I'm really scared. They just almost know it's like conditioning. 
this is how this cult works and you're not going to tell anyone. (laughs) So well said. Yes. And he, you know, he still says that to this day, you know, this is my house and what goes on here is none of mom's business. So that's a, that's a favorite line of his. My daughter wasn't going. I came to the realization where I'm like, I force her to go. I'm not going to do that to a girl at such an impressionable age where I can't sit around and just say to her, oh, that's just dad. He's just mad. It's just this. It's It's setting such a bad example and pretense for her as she goes into friend groups and and high school potentially and boyfriends and all of that. Like I was like, can't set the standard of behavior. And I don't recommend this. And everyone will say, don't go against court orders. And I agree. But at a point for me, I remember emailing the evaluator and I was like, we are in crisis and I don't know what to do. He's not receptive. He doesn't listen. He's not understanding that these are our daughter's feelings and not my feelings. I'm not imposing this on her. She's seeing it herself. He took me to court. He asked for makeup time for the time that my daughter wasn't going. I had asked for the custody eval to be ordered. At that time, the judge didn't grant him the makeup time. She ordered the custody eval, but then she kind of threw the book at us and she court ordered co-parenting therapy. So which is gives him more access to you. So much money. So we had a split parenting uh, therapy 50-50 and then we had to split the PC 50-50 and we had to split the custody of Al. My daughter still would not go. My son was still fine with going every other week about my daughter was like, I'm not going there. So he took me back to court in October. We had started with the co-parenting therapy, but uh, at the PC yet. And we had both started with the evaluator. So he took me back to court and the judge lost her mind on me. And, you know, the alienation, she's doesn't care about court orders. I'm like, you don't understand what's happening. My daughter is terrified of him. So the judge granted his motion request. And this is also why I, when I talk to moms, I'm like, you have to be careful when you're in this gray area or you're not divorced yet. These judges can fire off orders and it can be so damaging. Essentially what he asked for was makeup time and that he would have every weekend and my weekend would be essentially his makeup time. So she just granted it without looking at a calendar and realizing that that equated to me only having the kids Tuesday after school overnight and Wednesday overnight. And then he had the rest of the time. Oh my God. So here we go. We have a real live example of an abuser using alienation to gain custody of the children because he's abusive to your daughter and she doesn't want to go over there because she doesn't feel safe. And the judge just without taking a deep dive or realizing the actual structure of the custody that she's ordering. So I believe it was a Friday and it was my weekend. Yeah, it was November 19th. The judge was like, okay, you know, you can go to school and get the kids. And he's like, no, 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 your honor. We should let Courtney do it. Now I have to tell the kids that every weekend for six months, they have to go with dad. Oh, this guy's good. She was like, that That gives her t- some time with them. He doesn't care about my time with them. He wants me to be the bad guy. So she, she said on the record that if I did not make Avery go, I would lose custody. So permanently. She's like, this is just a temporary order. This is just compensatory time. But if you don't make them go, you will lose custody. I mean, with that, I, I knew I had to have a really horrible conversation with my daughter and my kids. And it was awful. And I dropped them off there. And I just remember thinking, I have to get through this. And I'm going to have to pull myself together because I'm about to start this custody eval. Of course, he ended up being awful to them the entire time. 
my daughter was devastated every day in school. She was down at the guidance office crying. You know, my son even like it finally caught up with him because he was like, I don't want to be away from you this much. And there was a lot of yelling in the house. So it wasn't a happy house at all. So my daughter started to record because New Jersey is a one party consent state. You know, she was getting super frustrated because she's like, no one listens to us. You know, like we had prior DCPMP involvement, you know, child protective services, whatever other various people. And she's like, no one listens. And this is why I don't want to go. You know, he would check her phone. We weren't allowed to talk. We couldn't text. So we were talking on Snapchat because it would disappear. And we started the custody eval. And in hindsight now, it really did give the evaluator a live, real view of potentially more time with dad. And the inverse of that when it went back to normal and how the kids acclimated to that and how, you know, life kind of was different when the custody was better. So I think it went a long way, but there's so much da- emotional damage that resulted. Right. From that. right. Uh, and I know when I talk to women that have gone through similar situations, what you said was, was so small, but was a very big deal. You dropped them off and it was awful. And you said, I have to just pull it together and get through this custody evaluation. So What that is, is it's the radical acceptance. This is what it is. I'm not saying it's okay. It is what it is. So now what? And you're flipping it and you're like, okay, I have this custody eval. I have this opportunity and it's awful. I can't get my kids back as much as I want them right now, but let's use it. Let's use this time just to elaborate on what you just said. And it's so hard. And I don't say this to be dismissive, but it's like, you have to take the emotion and really almost like visualize taking your emotion out of your body and putting it next to you and look at it as like black and white as you can. You know, there's something to be said about meditation and visualizing things and all of that. So it's like, I really just tried to look at it outside of my body and be like, okay, what am I going to do here? Well, this is going to help me prove that it's not about the kids at all. Because if it were about the kids, he'd be nicer to me, he'd be nicer to the kids. And his communication was awful during that time. He was horrific to the kids, all of that. It would help me show what life would be like with more time with dad, because that's what he was asking for in the evaluation. And it would kind of prove my point that he's very good at manipulating and charming and, and playing the victim and getting people to believe him, which is also a really dangerous aspect of his personality. And that's another issue or hurdle that protective moms face, right? The more people you have involved in your case, the more people you have to help guide them to see who they really are and hope that they're not going to be swindled by the manipulation tactics and the victim mentality and the maligning of the character. And it just, it's so much pressure because you're constantly having to A, prove that you're not crazy and that you're fit parent and that they are crazy and they're manipulative and and all of those things. And then just to (laughs) pile on to that, if someone does come on team that is seeing what's going on, then the that manipulative personality kicks into gear to get them out and get someone in who's buying. So, and then you've got another person to overcome. Yep. And just to your point, just that like my, so the new PC we started with going over with him, some financial issues. And as soon as he seemingly was going to rule in my favor, because I was asking for expenses that my ex wouldn't reimburse me for since 2017, he 
immediately fired him, immediately wrote this whole email about how inappropriate he is and unprofessional he is and his office staff is awful. And, you know, I'm this manipulative person and he obviously isn't professional enough to handle people like me and all of this stuff. So he fired him, which the judge was not happy about. But so the custody of Al was supposed to take three to four months. The expert that we use, she's excellent. She's a forensic psychologist and an attorney. She, you know, was like, it's normally three to four months and my reports are normally 50 to 60 pages long. Um, ours ended up taking 13 months. Our report was 167 pages long. She did a very comprehensive eval, dove into every document we provided. She talked to all the collaterals and she did extensive, extensive testing on both of us and the kids. She was good at ensuring that the testing really aligned with you know, what she was trying to get at and the problems that she saw and how the testing, you know, corroborated certain things and disproved other things, you know, and her analysis was excellent. What happened was the custody went back to normal. We were on a much better schedule. Things were still awful. Finally, the report was done in end of November, 2022. So I had retained a new attorney. The court actually called us in December 22nd, 2022. You know, the judge was like, you know why I called you in? The report is ready. I know you guys haven't had a chance to read it yet. The judge was like, I have the ability to act in the best interest of the children. And she immediately suspended my ex-parenting time. Yeah, the report was that bad. She played the audio that my daughter had taken of my ex and had provided to the custody evaluator. The custody evaluator included that in the report just because it gives so much context to his level of rage. So the judge had to play those recordings on the record. So he just And say, what were they, Courtney? So it was like Easter and then just random car rides after baseball on the way to school. I mean, there were hours in the house, Christmas Eve, one was awful. I think the one that got everyone, because mind you, this is December 22nd, so three days before Christmas, six o'clock at night, we were there for hours. And wow. the courtroom, you know, there's trees and lights in the courthouse, you know, and the one I think that really got everyone was Christmas song, Carol of the Bells was playing. And it's kind of like an eerie, spooky song. So you hear them get in the car, that song's on. And then all of a sudden, you just hear the screaming, your mother's a bitch and she's a liar and meh, you know and then he'll stop and then you just hear the christmas music and then he'll go again and then you hear the christmas music and literally like the sheriffs the bailiffs the court secretary you know everyone was just like it's a mess i have the chill just at the thought of listening to the music in the background it was awful so, i hate to say it but it's almost like the universe put music to this horrible thing so that it would put an explanation point on it when it was played for everyone oh my right gosh. so and like i just remember the speakers in the ceiling of the courtroom felt like they were on top of me because voice is so it, it's just so angry it goes right through you and i just sitting there crying the whole time they were playing it because it was just awful to have to relive all of that and I remember saying to my lawyer, I don't want to have to sit and listen to this. And she's like, it has to be on the record. That was really, really an emotional and, and difficult hearing for so many reasons. And once they said, you know, my daughter's name and that they were going to play the recordings by her because he didn't know at that point about the recordings. It was, Thank God. I know, but it was also fear inducing that I was worried about retaliation and it, the emotions were insane that day. 
I have, uh, and I have a question. If I'm jumping too far ahead, tell me you'll answer this in a minute. But I'm curious. So logistically, when a judge orders that and you have a terrifying person you're going to get the kids from, how does that work? Do you go get them? How does that work? Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. It ended up being his day. And I remember we knew the report was done, but of course he wasn't paying. So held up and there was a lot of letters back and forth and he didn't have an attorney. And I, because normally when a report is done and I wanted to touch on this too, it's the logistics of the report being released are, are really unnerving and unsettling for a variety of reasons. Most of the time it's under protective order. It'll go to the court and you can read it by yourself, the court, or you can read it with your attorney. Or they'll call you in if it's bad enough. To It's kind of like this unknown, like, when is it going to be released? When is the protective order going to be signed? Is he going to see it first? Am I going to see it first? What is it going to say? You know, most of the time, you'll both read it, and then you'll kind of go to like mediation, or someone will file a motion and ask for certain things based on what's in the report. Okay. Uh, in our case, the court proactively was, we have to take action. This is really bad. These kids can be around him anymore. It ended up being his day. And I remember every time his weekend would come up, I would say to my attorney, like, can't have this report released. And then him home with these kids for five days. Right. And you know, the time is, time is ticking because the end of the year, I'm like, the court's going to be closed. I'm not going to be able to get the kids. Like it was really stressful. So when my lawyer called me, I was like, court is calling us in. I'm like, well, what is going on? She's like, I, I don't, no, but she's like, it's not good. So, I mean, we had an idea, but you can never be certain, right? So, and I had been through so much with this judge in the court that I was always a little bit nervous, but I knew how bad he was. And I knew that the evaluation would be able to put it in a in a format where the judge would be able to see what's going on. So I expressed my concern for having to get the kids. So what the court did was they had him call his mom, who was with the kids, and she had to drop them off in my house. And my my friend went there to make sure that they got there before we left. Perfect. So they yeah. were at your home when you arrived. Yeah. And then, you know, it was three days later. It was Christmas. So it was just crazy. The court was closed, which I think also may have been done intentionally by the court because they were kind of like, this is what's happening. See in the new year, because I think they just knew he would be there, you know, the next day filing something. So luckily the kids and I had a pre-planned vacation. So we went to Florida and it's probably the best holiday season that we've had since I don't even want to say 2016 before that. Shortly thereafter, you know, he retained an attorney and they, they didn't the report because the report is so well done. Um, so what they did was they are complying with the report and um, asking for his parenting time to be reinstated. So that's basically what we've been in court since January of 2023 on a month or twice a month basis, um, and then add in this fourth restraining order. He's slowly gotten time back with my son. My daughter still won't go. Um, he's had to do a variety of therapies, but the level of change, you know, who is like measuring the the change, right? Because I, I see no change. In fact, I think he's worse. But the courts really look at clients with their orders more so than psychological. Can he change? Is he able to change? Is he healthy now? Right. That's not the barometer of what they measure. They measure he's complying. He learned his lesson. You know, he's going to behave now, which we know with these people isn't the case. You know, he the only thing he learned is that he can't yell. He just learned how to manipulate better. Yeah. He's a more sophisticated abuser, basically. He can't yell. He can't do really overt things. And, you know, the behavior was good for probably a month or two when he had no parenting time and just a therapeutic visitation with my son. And it slowly 
degraded back to pretty much where it was, which resulted in me getting the restraining order in October. So another one. We are headed back actually to our second round of evaluation with the same evaluator. They call it a focus eval. (laughs) So basically the evaluator does a follow-up? She'll update the report. So it's much more narrow in scope. It's obviously not as comprehensive. She has a tremendous amount of case history, which is good. It should be shorter, but essentially she's going to interview all of us, the kids, and talk to treating clinicians that have been involved since um, because he's had to do a variety of therapies and then she'll make recommendations. So And I think this is also something protective parents or moms need to know. It's like how you enter that evaluation will kind of put up guardrails as to like what the evaluator can really do or what recommendations they can really offer, right? So like when we went the first time, my ex was saying I was an alienator and that he should have more time. And I was saying, I'm not an alienator. He's abusive and he should have less time. So she really stayed within that scope. She touched on like long-term solutions, PC for compliance and to manage communications. But really the crux of the issue was all of this conflict and the domestic abuse and the coercive control that the kids were exposed to and how we were going to handle that. So now, you know, we're going back and it's a much different approach. I'm specifically asking, you know, I need sole legal custody and here's why. Can you provide a recommendation to the court because it's a need? And then there's some other things that we need to address. Communication is so problematic. We need a third party to really help us. And she kind of made the recommendation in the first report, which is why she's also very good, is she said like the communication can't continue. So we need a third party Not that I'm responsible for paying for, that he must pay for, that he communicates with me through, that will, that has the authority to manage the communication. And if it becomes problematic, immediately stop it. Wow. Um, Now, do those, does that person have a name? Because this is so, (laughs) this might actually be one that we need. Because sometimes I hate layering all these people on because half the time it just gives them access to you. That's really great to have a communication monitor. I And that's the problem because does this person really exist? It's, it's, she said a neutral third party like PC. Okay. Um, okay. The, and I think there's opportunity here for someone less for sure, if you can get an expert to recommend it, but it's more so like compliance. You know, we're hearing from his attorney that he's amazing and he goes to therapy and he meditates and it's like, okay, but what is really going on in those therapeutic sessions? And if there's an issue, how are we getting that information to the therapist? Like, I can assure you that the communications that have been problematic, I don't think he's going in there showing her. The services that he was ordered, so he's ordered to do the batter's intervention, individual therapy, parenting classes, someone that really is going to be able to get updates from the treating clinicians and kind of be able to decipher, like, are they really complying? Are they just checking boxes? But, you know, that's where I think the issue with family court is like, that's not really a PC or a lawyer role that's kind of out of their scope. That's more a therapist, mental health person. You know, I've talked to a few people that are directors of ladders intervention programs, the ones that really hold them accountable. Someone more in that realm because they need to understand the psychology of these people and how it's not meaningful participation. I love that suggestion, having someone who runs like batterers program, because you're right. You know, they deal with the abusers that refuse to admit that they abuse and things like that. And you can see the psychology behind it. Yeah. I mean, he's going back into the custody of Al now saying, 
I'm healed. I'm better. She is the problem. She won't get over the past. I should have custody of the kids. I'm an alienating person that's making this all up. Like back to essentially square one. Something interesting with family court is to your point, we need someone that holds them really accountable. And the accountability has to be immediate. If they don't comply, there has to be a repercussion. That is the gap of family court. For example, in light of all of this custody stuff going on, he still wasn't paying me. He fired the PC, still wouldn't pay me. So we had to file a motion for extracurricular expenses because he just wouldn't pay because coercive control, I'm not going to pay. We settled that. The motion was filed in April. We signed a consent order in July from August to now. He still hasn't paid, won't pay. Sent him the expenses. He's like, I'm not paying. So we're going to have to go back and relitigate something we just litigated. And that's where we really need this intermediary where I can be like, he's not complying. We just did this. We're going to waste the court's time, the resources. At what point does it become enough for the court to be like, you aren't complying, therefore you have no, it has to be a repercussion that's going to make them not do it again. Exactly. And I guess that's what baffles me is because we see all the time court orders they ignore and back in asking for another order to reinforce the first order. And it's you would think that that's where the court would have enough. Something is needed. To, they need a babysitter to monitor them in their court order, you know, compliance. Even, even with a babysitter, who like who has the authority to force things? And what does enforce mean? Said it has to be something that hurt. And we're always chasing tails. You know, that's what it feels like. So I think it's end coercive control USA where she says it's like quicksand and it truly is. It's just sand. Like in this, every time I think, okay, I got the order, he has to pay. It's like, nope, no, I'm not going to pay. And I'm like back in this. So infuriating and it's maddening. But family court is so interesting because there are no real repercussions, right? Instead of accountability, Every time he doesn't follow a court order and my lawyer reaches out to his for the expenses, for Mm -hmm. example, turns into this opportunity for them to negotiate and try to manipulate. It's not a negotiation. It's a court order that we literally just signed. I know. And if I can just get specific on this, you're right. So they don't comply. Then you have to file something, go, go. And they're like, okay, fine. He'll pay if he can have the kids an extra week. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. You don't get rewarded for not paying. And then we have to take you to court again. But you're absolutely right. The Jedi mind trick crap they try to pull is I've seen that. I've seen that move so many times. It's not a level playing field. You can't reach out to someone who is completely unwilling to co-parent in any way be reasonable in any way and expect that all of a sudden they're just going to comply. But the system is such that there's no recourse for us. And I'm not one of those who thinks we should burn family court to the ground because unfortunately it works. I want to say works. It works for most people in quotes, but the like 5% or more of these high conflict, again, in quotes, cases, it doesn't work for. And it's really not so much because the system doesn't work. Person is so disordered that no matter what you have in place, they're not going to comply. They cannot comply. They have a personality disorder and they thrive on conflict and it's just a way for them to abuse and that's how they operate. So it's almost unreasonable for us to think that they would all of a sudden become reasonable when they're in family court. But that doesn't solve the problem. Like, what do we do with So speaking, (laughs) you have gone on to help found New Jersey Protective Parents. And so would you tell me about that? 
It started basically on Instagram. I was just kind of, I made up a fake like burner account. I'll say that I was following a lot of, you know, one mom's battle, you, a lot of, you know, well-known people in the, in this world, unfortunate world (laughs) in crazy town. So I connected with other moms in Jersey and we found out that they were trying to pass a course of control bill to add course of control to the statute of DV in New Jersey. So we partnered with the New Jersey Coalition and Domestic Violence, and we found out the days that they were going to have testimony. And we drove down to the state house and we testified. We were like, we should really start a nonprofit because it's just going to be better. We're going to be able to attract more protective moms, and it's just going to be so much better for us to start, you know, spreading awareness and and being able to really have a solid foundation where we can be more than just crazy moms that they think we're like jaded because we got divorced and we're really here trying to do something for the kids. So um, that's kind of how it started. There's six of us on the board and we're all protective moms. We've all been through various, you know, domestic abuse situations, physical, non-physical, course of control, financial abuse, the whole gamut. Our focus is really on spreading awareness, educating, you know, everyone in New Jersey on the issues that protective moms and kids face in family court um, and really trying to work in step with lawmakers and, you know, those in the family court to try to be like, these are the problems and we really need to sit because I I don't think it's going away. There has been some really great progress made in other states where they kind of take this approach where they, you know, kind of lean into all of the governing bodies that oversee family court and they try to, you know, write research papers or have meetings with them where they're like, this is the current research that's happening. And these are the failures that we've seen in the state, you know, because every state has those horrible cases, Peaky's Law, Caden's Law, you know, we had a young boy here who was killed by his father. I think every state has, you know, unfortunately, a case that they can really highlight, get that change to move. So that's our approach. We have a really great new president in New Jersey's AFCC chapter, which I know they're normally very and very pro the reunification camps, but she's progressive and she's not for the um, reunification camps and she's all for a course of control and expanding, you know, the custody laws to really get a version of Caden's law here in Jersey. Um, so that's our hope next year. We're hoping course of control passes this year. It only has to pass the Senate to every other committee. It's passed the House. So we're very close. They say they're going to put it up before January 9th, which is the end of this term. So we're crossing our fingers because once we have coercive control under the DV umbrella, we really want to focus on the custody. And we've been told through various people, we've made connections with that they're going to be putting together a task force with survivors of family court to really look in depth at the issues that New Jersey family courts are facing and the issues that, you know, people that are in the system are facing. So we were kind of informally asked to be a part of that. So I think that's going to be a tremendous opportunity to really be able to be like, these things need to change because the safety of the the kids and honestly, like the court's resources, like, aren't you sick of seeing us? <laughs> right. Like, aren't you sick of babysitting us? Like you have other things to do. So- I know. I know. It's amazing. But it is so fantastic that you guys have championed this mission. Every state said that we get these laws passed is just another inch closer to having our children protected because at the end of the day, that is what it is all about. It's Tina Swithin says, family court's the only place where our primal instinct as mothers to protect our children is weaponized against us. And it's just, it's it's baffling. So thank you so much. It's really cool too about your guys' website, which I love, which is njprotectivemoms.org if you guys want to go there and check out more. But I love how you have all of the studies and the resources. 
I'm a big studies person. When I talk about things, I love to quote statistics or studies. And so there's so many great resources. If anybody is searching for that kind of thing, could you list some of them that are on your website? I know we have the Sanders study and we have the high conflict one, if that's the same, forgive me. We have the Joan Meyer study. I believe I linked a new study out of Canada that's about why joint legal custody isn't in the best interest when there's domestic abuse. I have, I think Emma Katz has an article on there because she's really great. Anything that is speaking to why, you know, domestic abuse should be really a number one risk category, if you will, in child custody determinations. I spent a tremendous amount of time building out that website. I did it myself, but I think it looks really great. I think it is, to your point, a good resource for moms. And I wanted to put it there because I wanted people to really be able to read the information and make their own determinations and not just take my word for it. And Lundy's Bancroft said this in a podcast he did recently where he's like, we don't have to convince, we just have to spread awareness. Like when people realize what's going on, they're horrified. You can read any of those studies and be horrified. And I want people to really come to terms on it on their own. And I think, you know, naturally they will. And my local newspaper did a recent article on me. Of course, my ex somehow, someone sent it to him. So him and his attorney sent it to the judge and they were up in arms and she called us in and we had a whole conference on it. They mentioned the website and all of this. And I, and if you read the website, it's not at all bashing family court. It's really saying like, we want to be able to work with them to really improve the system and, and let them understand like, this is real. This is happening. This isn't just, you know, the uneducated teen mom who's getting beat up by her drunk boyfriend. Like that's not domestic abuse anymore. It's not, that's such an antiquated view to look at it as. And, and so that's really what we're, we're hoping to do. That's awesome. I love that approach. And it makes so much sense that Lindy Bancroft said it, but you just put the information out there and it speaks for itself. And it's funny because that's the strategy you have to have in court as well. You can't come in there convincing or, you know, bashing or anything. It has to be unemotional, has to be just factual. And I, again, I always say this, I don't want to discount anyone's experience. I know how traumatizing it can be. I know judges make bad decisions. I know kids have been hurt. Kids have been killed. The worst case scenario. And it's so, so hard. People may disagree with my approach, but I'm doing what I feel like will be the most impactful for me and my story. I have been through the ringer. I've probably the equivalent of two college educations on legal bills. And I have to turn this into a teaching opportunity I have to use it as as an opportunity to really hopefully change things. And I think that, you know, there's power in in that too. And I I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I hope not. I think my judge learned a lot about my case. I will say that. And she actually has apologized to me on the record twice. So I know there is an email address on your website. If people want to reach out and have questions, is that okay? Happy to talk through, you know, any of the insight that I have from going through the custody of Al. I know we didn't get to it you know, some of the tips and tricks that I have, because I know that's also a really, really emotional and difficult thing to go through. Any ounce of a win, I think we all we all have to take. Absolutely. And so I just thank you for coming on, sharing your story, which is 
so validating, letting other people know that they are not alone. There are many people out here on the front lines fighting and then also trying to make a difference on the back end. New Jersey NJ Protective Moms.org. Such great resources. You guys take a look at it. Courtney has really done a great job with the website. And, you know, if you have questions or want to start a similar thing in your state, I'm sure that she would be happy to help you or give you some advice along that. So thank you. Good luck to you. I know you still have a few things coming up on your case in the near future. So I will be thinking about you. Yeah, I'll let you know how. Yes, please do. All right. Thank you so much, Courtney. I wish you the best possible holidays. <laughs> you too. <laughs> and thank you again for spending your time with me telling your story. You. Okay, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Bye. 